Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors and or editors of those books. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Tom Wiener on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Called to Serve, Stories of Men and Women Confronted by the Vietnam War Draft. As I was telling Tom before the interview... My uncle was uh, in Vietnam. I don't remember him being drafted. He wasn't drafted. He actually, um, uh, I don't know if he volunteered or not, but he was in the Air Force when it started, and then he went to fly in Vietnam and did several tours of duty there. But I do remember in um, roughly 1975 or something, actually going and registering for the draft. I, I mean, it's 76, 77. Tom, I'm sure, will be able to tell us. Um, there was no draft at that time, but the selective service system had just been reinstated for some reason, and everybody who was 18 had to go. And I remember going to the post office and signing some card and sending it away. And that was the last I heard of it, I'm, I'm very grateful to say. But I learned a lot about the draft, and I learned a lot about what my uncle must have experienced and other people around me must have experienced <clears throat> in the late 60s, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, uh, by reading Called to Serve, and I encourage you to go out and get the book. It's very interesting. So let me say to Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Absolutely. And could you kick off the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, Well, I am a father of four, married to Susan Dudek, who's a therapist, and I'm a grade elementary school teacher at the Smith College Campus School, starting in another month, my 39th year at the school. Um, This was my first book, and it took me seven years to write it, but it was a labor of love throughout. Uh, And I live in Northampton, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. 39 years in one job. That's me. That's That's incredible. (laughs) To me, that is an incredible fact. I haven't held a job for more than five years in my life. Um, That's really not quite true. But um, yeah, it shows a lot of dedication. So tell us why you wrote uh, Called to Serve. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, drafted back in 1971, right before I graduated Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, where I was a student. And um, at that time and since that time, the stories that people uh, told me about their experiences uh, with the draft and being in Vietnam, I found to be so compelling, so often gut and heart-wrenching, and so incredibly uh, poignant for people 18 to 25 years old to have to live through and face and overcome in many instances, that, uh, as I say in the introduction, I've been on a quest, I was on a quest ever since then to make sure that these stories, first of all, were not lost. And second of all, found a home, as many as I could put in one book. Uh, And I should say that although I interviewed 61 people, there are only 31 stories in the book. So I created a blog to put the other 30 and also to invite as many people as were interested into telling their own story. So there are many stories on the blog as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this quest culminated in the seven years that it took to write the book because I as I already said, I was teaching sixth grade throughout the entire time, so this really became uh, my avocation and 
worked on it on weekend mornings from about 5 a.m. on and uh, found time to do these incredible interviews that were always here producing for myself and the subject and that were proofs, proof, proof positive that the quest had been worthwhile because uh, anyone reading the book will see that these stories uh, really are incredibly moving. Mm-hmm. They are incredibly moving. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one of the things I guess I would like to say is that the the draft has a place in the American memory, but one thing that you focus on, and, and this word also is very evocative, at least to people of my generation, the lottery. That, that I yes. can even I can even somehow I think I remember seeing it on TV, but I don't think I saw it on TV. If you see what I mean, it's right. that yes. it's that That's important that kind of, in American like a culture. Assassination. Right, yep. exactly. I, I think I saw it, but I didn't see it. I'm sure I didn't. So, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the draft and the lottery, particularly? Okay, sure. And I'd like to tell a little bit about how the book evolved. Sure, absolutely. At, at the beginning, it was just going to be about beating the draft through the lottery experience. It was just going to be the people who had found either through getting the obvious high number, because the higher your number, the less likely you were to be called, or through chicanery or subterfuge, because many, many, many men found uh, ways to beat the draft, even with their low numbers, when they faced the draft board and the physical, by doing all kinds of things from starving themselves to be beneath the weight requirement, from pretending they were gay, to uh, one man in the book who feigned being a a mentally ill homeless person and stayed in character the entire time and was able to uh, get out of the draft through that method. Put a, so, put a tattoo. Uh, the, put a tattoo on his forehead. Somebody yes, did that. Yes, that's else a did, good actually one. Actually, did the uh, a tattoo of uh, FTA, which was an abbreviation for a curse word yeah. of something to do to the army. Yeah. Um, and the evolution of the book basically came about because as I was doing interviews, well, the, the first person I interviewed turned out to be someone who had. Uh, been told by he got a low number and he was told by his by a recruiter he walked into a recruiting station and the recruiter said to him look you have a low number you're going to get drafted you'll end up in Vietnam enlist with me and you won't end up in Vietnam and this man came back from Vietnam addicted to heroin Mm -hmm. so I started realizing that the project needed to evolve the lottery certainly was going to cast a huge shadow because it had an incredible effect uh, on, on the uh, anti-war movement and on, on my age group men in general because it it attempted to equal the playing field but failed dismally and ended up really being divisive because people who had high numbers no longer had as much at stake. And so it had that kind of effect. But what I was realizing was that the experience that these various people had with the draft based on their lottery numbers needed to be chronicled in its entirety. So it turns out that Call to Serve, the book, is the only place you can go to see the experiences of all the different types of things that people had choices to do. Mm-hmm. So that's why each chapter is dedicated to one of those choices. And I decided very consciously to have the first chapter be those who serve because measuring also things by how traumatic the experiences were for these 18 to 26-year-old people, the people who served were the singularly, obviously, for so many reasons, most traumatized so that was the logic of the evolution of the book. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, in the end, uh, by having these experiences, by being the interviewer, I got to see how much healing people still needed to do 
their own healing and then the bigger healing in terms of the country, healing the wounds of this war that was so divisive even among those who were called because there were people who were telling me their stories of serving who still had feelings about those who didn't serve mm-hmm. for whatever the reason, even if they uh, ended up just having a high number, let alone going to jail and protest against the war. Mm-hmm. So one of the bigger purposes that the book is hoping to accomplish, and I've had wonderful feedback about this, is just to promote long, long, long overdue healing of the wounds from this war on, on the people who served and did not serve and mm-hmm. having them find ways to have uh, common ground mm-hmm. from having all been affected in ways that are unacceptable yet keep happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're right that the, that the you know, it lingers. Uh, I have friends who are Vietnam veterans and uh, I meet them in various contexts. And as I say, my uncle was there, he's dead now, but it does linger. It is around and it's especially, I guess, you know, it's in the air now. We've been involved for two or more wars now for I don't know how long. I can't even remember. Um, Twelve years. It's a long time. <laughs> Vietnam used to be our longest war. In fact, yes, there was a, there was a book called years, The Longest and then, War, yep, and that's yep, just not true yep. anymore. I can't, I'm, that's just amazing to me. But, yeah, I mean, it's in the air. We don't do it that way anymore. We have an all-volunteer force. But Exactly, uh, and that's but, all part of the lessons of Vietnam that I think we learned the wrong ones. Yeah. So, again, tell us a little bit about how the uh, draft and lottery evolved. In the in the post-war, I guess period. Well, in terms of you mean after Vietnam? After, no, I mean after World War II. Oh, okay. The post the yeah. I'm sorry war. about that. Yeah, right, right. The so-called well, good there war. Was, yeah. There was another war that yeah. even more uh, forgotten in some ways by the subsequent generations in Korea, and that war had uh, very questionable results and, and required the loss of many, many lives. Uh, and after Korea, without getting too deep into the history of Vietnam, and just from their point of view, this is just called the American War because Vietnam has had so many conflicts with so many different uh, regimes and countries, starting really with China, but France and uh, America subsequently. Uh, when that war started heating up, and there were many reasons that were given at the time, domino theories about communism, trying to prevent the spread of uh, either Russia's or China's brand of communism and our own empire building. Uh, but when that war started becoming undeniable, and if you uh, read the more recently released history about Kennedy, he supposedly was trying to de-escalate the war, and that might have been one of the reasons why they took him out, the CIA and the uh, FBI as possible co-conspirators. But uh, the war did escalate under Johnson horribly, uh, and when that escalation occurred, there needed to be more and more and more soldiers on the ground. And in, or in an effort to do that, a draft was instituted, and the draft had innumerable categories that are uh, enumerated in the book, uh, for de- depending on your status, uh, especially in terms of whether you attended college, which gave you a deferment for the four years. But in 1969, as I said, in an effort to try to both get more men, and also, uh, I think, very much to diffuse the anti-war movement by having this lottery, uh, on December 1st of 1969, the, the birth dates were picked out of a big giant glass bowl. Uh, on the radio, it was available, which is the story I tell in the introduction about being in the, driving through the streets of uh, Hartford, Connecticut, waiting for my number to come up. And for many people sitting in their dorm rooms, etc., alone or with others, hearing their fate 
sealed by this incredible pulling out of a birthday from a bowl. Mm-hmm. Now, now, this was a, weird. Th- this was an effort to make it, I guess, the, the, the fairer or more fair. Yeah, the, the idea was that with lotteries, just like when you now buy your lottery tickets, it's uh, supposed to be pretty arbitrary and mm-hmm. random. Who gets mm-hmm. picked? Right. The problem that persisted was that the college deferments still list left, were in, in place for the people who could afford college. So there was a privilege uh, a factor for the four years you were in college, and then. Many, many privileged men, including myself, as I told the story in the introduction, uh, had other ways out that the lottery could not affect. You could get a low number, but if you had influence uh, enough to get a doctor's letter or to uh, document some condition you might have had, uh, psychological condition, whatever the situation is that you went after, it still uh, enabled a lot of people to get out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think it did some of the dividing of the of the anti-war movement, and it's, this is documented as well, because those people who were automatically out, as I said earlier, had less at stake now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. personally. I yeah, I see just what you mean. So uh, let's begin by telling some of the stories. Do you want to tell your own? Uh, sure. You don't have to, quali- but go ahead. No, no, no. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. Uh, I qualify this. Um, I, I tell uh, this story um, even 40 years later because I'm a sixth grade teacher. And as you'll soon hear, there's an element uh, of uh, questionable morality. <laughs> That's a long uh, time ago, Tom. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but I teach a whole class in drug usage and uh, making wise decisions and choices yeah, sure, and being aware of sure. the legal repercussions of your choices. Sure. And here's the story. Yeah. So I got the number 117, which was a uh, right in there going to be drafted the the cutoff point was usually thought to be about 180 and numbers above 180 were safe and the higher above 180 the safer but i had a number so that when i got it i knew that i was going to be drafted unless the war ended in the time between 69 and 71 when i lost my deferment and and luck luck was not with me entirely as was true with a lot of men and I had my uh, draft notice, my report for a physical notice, even before I graduated Trinity. So I had to go that summer of 1971 for my physical. And I had prepared a number of different ways out, including writing a conscientious objector application, which is a whole category in the book. having documentation of the calcium deposits on my feet, the, my curvature, slight curvature of the spine, my allergies, I was one of those privileged men who could access the medical system. I also had a letter from the school counselor at Trinity documenting my uh, neuroses and my psychological state. Well, at the physical, where I sat in Newark, New Jersey, with a room full of black men and myself and a few other white people, uh, wondering out loud in my brain what it would be like to give up my seat and only knowing that some person of color was giving having to take it. There's a crappy feeling, which I write in the book, is not was not that different, although less intentional, than what people did in the Civil War who had means and could buy uh, mm-hmm. someone else to take their place. Uh, so there was a really awful feeling that I was simply... Uh, getting out and having someone else go for me who was less advantaged person of color. Uh, but when I went through the physical, I passed with flying colors. All the tests, no one paid any attention to my feet and my back and my allergies. They thought they were very not minimal. But the letter from the school counselor got me an interview with the army psychiatrist. And uh, here's where I 
when I did uh, an interview with the Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Northampton local newspaper, I told them the rest of this story is off the record. I, didn't, I, I told them, actually, I did it like a sixth grade book report. I said, I went into the shrink's office and all he did was ask me two questions. If you want to know the questions and the answers, read the book. But for purposes of this interview, I will divulge. And what happened as the book documents is that I was asked if I'd ever smoked marijuana to which I answered along with my entire generation, except yeah. for Bill Clinton, who didn't inhale, yes. Right, yeah, right. And then they asked me if I ever had a suicidal fantasy, and again, I said yes. And that was it. The shrink, the army shrink, scribbled something on a piece of paper. I was shaking in my boots, which I was thankfully not having to wear yet, and hopefully never would, and walked up to his desk and leaned down to look at what he wrote, and it said, one why drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And one Y was a category you fit into short of the absolute failure for F that meant you could only be called up in national emergencies if our country was under attack. Mm-hmm. So I was out. Mm-hmm. Didn't feel really good to be out as a drug abuser, something that I thought very possibly would be the haunting of the rest of my life. Uh, so I was safe on the one hand, but in jeopardy potentially on the other. When I called my draft counselor, which my family had also been able to afford, uh, he told me uh, not to worry that someday I'd be a hero. And that didn't ring very true. I think he just wanted to assuage my feelings of uh, fear and guilt. Um, I've never had the experience of feeling that that designation has made me a hero. In mm-hmm. fact, as you're hearing me say, 40 years later, it was still a little haunting to think that a newspaper article would out me for how I'd gotten out of the draft. Yeah. You must have had friends or acquaintances that uh, were called up and did serve, and and you must have had interactions with them after this. How how did you, I mean, what sort of rapport did you have with those people at that time? I mean, the reason I asked the question is because it's a very different time. That it, I mean, t- today is a very different time, uh, it, it, and I expect it's very different than we would experience it today. But go ahead, talk a little bit about that. Well, interestingly, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, and I have thought about this a lot, even though I haven't talked about it much. Truth be told, at Trinity College, there were precious few veterans coming back from, from Vietnam. They knew one who was someone who I kind of avoided. He seemed a little scary. He was dressed in his uh, army jackets all the time. I I could not get a good read on where he was coming from and what was going on for him. Hmm. And because it was such an elite environment and most of the other environments I'd hang out with with other friends who went to other colleges were similar, we did not have that experience of encountering many people who were in Vietnam or had gone. Hmm. My community was affluent. Mm-hmm. And many, many, many of the people who were called, especially before the lottery, my first three years in college, were people who were not college uh, bound. So there was a real uh, disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I would have to say the experience of doing this book where I interviewed upwards of 20 veterans, chose I think eight are in the book, was really some of my first, let alone unbelievably in-depth encounters with people who had undergone, you know, mental torture for mm-hmm. having to have, first starting with basic training, mm-hmm. uh, learning more about basic training. Now, one of my dear friends from college, a man named Michael Sample, uh, he, <clears throat> he, he graduated in 1969 
before the lottery and was immediately uh, called and ended up enlisting in the Marine Reserves. So I did get to hear his stories, and they were unbelievably haunting. And I had later on, like 35 years later, interviewed him for the book, and he had absolute recall of some of these awful memories of the uh, basic training experience, hmm. getting busted in the mouth with a rifle butt, but for trying to defend one of his fellow soldiers who was being mistreated. Just really horrific stories. And they, they, he never went to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the degree to which there is, and, and a number of the people who are in the book document this, a total kind of destruction of your personality and your identity to rebuild you in the form of a military, you know, in the form of a machine gun. Mm -hmm. and your identification with your rifle is, is, is supposed to be stronger than with any person in your life up to then. And then all the brainwashing to make you believe that A, the uh, enemy are uh, less human than we are, and B, you do anything to save your brothers, including mm -hmm. horrible acts. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just the start. Mm -hmm. I, mean, so I feel like I got that awareness from these interviews much, much more than I did from encountering... Uh, military people uh, who served back yeah, in the day. Yeah, I was going to say that there is a kind of generational difference here. And just to relate my own experience with veterans from the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan war, I, when I used to teach uh, at the University of Iowa, I had a lot of students, I don't know about a lot, dozens I would say, who had come back from those wars, yes, and yes, they blended yes. in really well. I mean, yep. I just heard from one the other day, Drew Mangler, he was one of my best students. And if you saw this kid, you know, in his chinos and his eyes, I'd sure you would never guess that he had spent right. two tours of duty as a ranger in Afghanistan. You just would never know. Actually, he was in the um, he was a scout. Uh, but but they were they blended in very well. And, and the other thing is, is that when they came back is that at least in Iowa, and this may be something to do with Iowa, is that when anybody found out that they had served, it was always thank you for your service. That is another huge difference. Yeah. Huge. It's, huge. It's so many huge. of the people that came back and that are documented in the book talked about being ostracized, yeah. unable to speak about what happened to them, feeling completely alienated from the from the culture they were reentering. Mm -hmm. I'm pleased to hear that you couldn't uh, tell what happened to this person that you were referring yeah. to, but another part of me is wondering what was going on deeper down under the surface. Well, I happen to so know. Drama. I, in that case, I happen to know, and it's nothing very good. <laughs> well, I think that was widespread yeah, in this war, nothing, in these two nothing, wars. Nothing very good. Although I also know that uh, you know the army has done a lot uh, to treat people with PTSD, and also you know uh, um, I I know about. I'm not involved with things like Soldier On, which is for yes, um, yeah. homeless vets, and so they did a much, yeah. much much better job than I think they did in the Vietnam era. So, well, I think there has been some awakening, but I still think we have such a long way to go. We put people in these positions of having to do horrible, horrible, horrible things, and and we really have not taken the steps needed across the board, yeah. certainly not with Vietnam vets. Supposedly, and I write this in the book, as many men, 56,000 has died in the war, have taken their own life since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, living with the horrors of what you have had to do uh, is is unacceptable and, and we have not we, I, I agree with you that we're trying to start programs and, and have programs that really uh, target people who have been traumatized but we have just been scratching the surface of the need yeah I'm, 
Yeah, that's true. And that's another reason for the book, to dramatize what the need is, to show, and especially in that first chapter where these men went to war and were in Vietnam, how they came home so damaged mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what kind of help they needed, and some got it and some didn't. Well, you, you talk about in the book, I think it's five or six, is it six, uh, kinds of people and their relationship to the lottery. And the very first of them is, yeah. you yeah. say, those who served. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about some of them in general, or you want to talk about particular stories? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's always an incredible challenge for me. I've done a lot of readings and uh, residencies at colleges and stuff to try to figure out what to share because there's so much that is so overpoweringly moving. Uh, the book is dedicated to George Williams, who mm-hmm. was a, a veteran who uh, passed away several years ago, um, and his experience is, is riveting. I read, actually, one of the things I almost always read is a letter he writes to, that, that he saved. His, well, his, parent, his mother saved it uh, from when he was in Vietnam, writing about the experience of feeling he was doing these horrible things that he thought were supposed to be helping our country. And he had he was unable to figure out how that could be reconciled. And then he talks about how in the letter he says, um, I have these relationships with the children, and the children are why we're supposedly here, and yet their lives are being incredibly torturous and blown apart by us being here. Mm-hmm. So that's just you know a moment where I feel like I have to tell people this is what was going on in his head when he wrote back to what was called the world, mm-hmm. back in the world where people weren't really understanding what was going on in this war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Miller's story, I invariably share part of that, where he talks in depth about what it was like to take someone's life and then see that in much uh, in, in a great way, their life was so much more in touch with the Creator and being connected to the Earth. And uh, at one point, he even sees a picture in the person's wallet of his family, and he's you know, he's devastated by the experience, and he writes about it so movingly that I invariably read that section because it just touches so to the heart. I can even read a little bit of it mm-hmm. here. Please do. I, I tried to justify my killing this man, and it didn't work. I tried calling him a gook and a communist, and all that just evaporated because it became so obvious to me in his death how human he was. I couldn't have imagined him being in the jungle and the way he lived before I saw what he had done. We destroyed the jungle, and he could live in it. So who is living in the creation of the Creator and who is not? There were photographs in his breast pocket of his family, his mother and his brothers and his extended family. His mother had this great look of concern on her face. I knew that fear. She'll never know where he's buried or what happened to him. All of a sudden, all of it's a projection about enemy is going away. Now you're the enemy. In fact, you're the non-Christian because everything you're doing is against creation. He was my brother and I was assigned to kill him. In a way, that act of taking his life is a very intimate act, and there's no room to run from it. Mm. Just, you know, incredibly moving things Mm -hmm. that people have felt and realized. There are some amazing scenes of those men who went to Vietnam facing uh, the enemy and and being humbled and being undone by it, and then Mm -hmm. having these horrible, horrible things to them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that was done out of a sense of utter futility with having to be there. Yeah. In, in case of draft, oftentimes against your will. So much so that I, another thing that's not well documented was there was an incredible anti-war movement in the military. There's a fabulous film called Sir, No Sir. 
that documents the number of the, the ways in which the soldiers who came to realizations about what they were being asked to do and the wrongness of it organized and started fighting back to try to stop the war from the inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's just so many stories in yeah. that first section that I could I could uh, hark back to. And yeah. Every time I interviewed people, there were tears, mm -hmm. and and the memories were incredibly vivid. Yeah, I remember. I was just I've told this anecdote before, but I remember when I was a little kid asking my my uh, uncle when he came back. He was a fighter pilot, fighter bomber pilot, and I'd ask him, "Did he ever kill anybody?" And he said, "No." I don't know if he did that to protect me or protect him. Well, I think there was a lot of emotional. You had to really cut no, yourself off from those things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. And I think people, I mean, I think, you know, I think they were protecting themselves and us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was either or. It was like really hard for them to talk about because of what it brought back. And then it was really hard and painful for them to see the reactions. Yeah. And I think there's still truth in that for these veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. So, so one of the things, if I could generalize about that, those who served, and I want to, I want to move on quickly, but is that when you, you, I really like the way that you always ask them about the moment when they realize that they're going to be drafted, they get their lottery yep. number. Yep. And for this group of people, there was a kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's almost a kind of a equanimity about it, that they, they, they don't really care very much. I think it varied, but I think definitely in many instances, people were not having paid enough attention, and they write about and they talk about that too. They said, you know, I didn't really know what was going on. I'd heard about Vietnam. I didn't really know what was happening there. Uh, my life was moving along, and I wasn't paying attention. You get that sense. Yeah. Whereas those of us who were, you know, in college and having that time to imagine being there, there was a much bigger learning curve um, that could occur in uh -huh. terms of what was actually going on. And being supported, this is another big difference. If you were just out of high school or not in college, you were really on your own to a large extent. You might have had your friends in similar situation, but in college there was li literally a mass movement growing, yeah, yeah, an anti-war movement, and it was really fueled by college-age students. Yeah, and that really comes out in this section of the book because you know many of the pe some of the people in the book actually don't have terrible experiences. I'm thinking of I, I don't know whether it's Chuck Holmes or is it Dominic. Uh, Las Panaro, who who really comes to enjoy uh, fixing weapons, yes. which one? Yes. I, I, but he really loves it. Yep. He just loves it. Yep. And, yeah, yeah. Dominic's an amazing story. He's the one who had several brothers get drafted before him, and his mom was so infuriated and convinced that she could prevent him from going that she hid his draft letter. Yeah, right. until yeah. the night before. So he had. She realized she was going to be breaking the law, and he'd end up in jail. So she gave it to him, and he had no time to prepare. Yeah, in her act of love is very right, sad. Right. Well, let's let's move on to people. The yep. next chapter is called uh, "Those Who Left," and that's an interesting people. I, n I never I never sort of mm, parsed this group. Uh, I, I never really parsed this group out. So th these are people. It explain exactly who these people are. Well, this is this is a, the amazing chapter that uh, on the on the uh, Black River, I think it's called from the book, "The Things They Carried," that mm -hmm. I quote in the beginning yeah. of this chapter, where where uh, Timothy. Tim O'Brien uh, writes about this moment where he has to make a decision about whether or not to leap out of the boat and go to Canada or stay. And this is this is a, a this, this torment on both sides of these issues of this of this choice because on the one hand, uh, staying and going to war uh, has all the things we've already been talking about attached to it, um, and and 
uh, a huge risk of life and all the things you have to do to be uh, a soldier. On the other hand, um, going to Canada meant leaving your family, never knowing that you'd ever be able to come back, being often labeled a traitor or treasonous or a coward. There was no win for so many of these choices, and yet you had to make the choice at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, which is obviously on many levels ridiculous because you're, you're still a developing person trying to work out so many other more fundamental aspects of life, although this one is the life and death one. Uh, so the people who went to Canada made a huge sacrifice, and it was all in the name of, of either self-preservation and or deep moral conviction that what was happening in Vietnam was utterly wrong. Mm -hmm. So they had to pick up and leave everything behind, oftentimes with very few resources, as is true in a number of the cases in the book, and try to make a new life. Thankfully, Canada at that time was welcoming for the most part. But if, if, as you read those stories, each person has a different kind of experience with the flight and mm -hmm. then the incredible experience of being disconnected mm -hmm. from everything you knew as a person coming of age in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's, I'd say another, and this is what I'm trying to convey with each chapter. That was traumatic too. That yeah, was a definitely. Huge yeah. Sacrifice and loss too. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Definitely. And these, and these men, uh, with, and sometimes with the women, they either uh, brought with them or uh, had come join them, had tried to make a life in really unfortunate circumstances. Uh, Craig Driesen, impoverished, uh, living off the land, basically, and having no no uh, connections, uh, tremendously isolating. Uh, relationships could be torn asunder. Uh, Jay Holtzman uh, uh, deciding to start a family there. And uh, 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 his wife was feeling tremendously isolated, was desperate to have contact with her own family as she brought children into the world and feeling tremendously still disillusioned with America. So not even thinking that ever be a time they'd want to come back in, even if they were allowed to come back. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, very, very, very powerful stories. A lot of tears during the telling of these tales. Yeah, I imagine there are. Sometimes you'll hear people say, and I think they say it offhandedly, that if X is elected, I'm moving to Canada. Right. And right, I always think right, about these yes. people. I'm like, you're not moving to Canada. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not for yeah, that. They don't know. For this, they you might. <laughs> right. Not for True. that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, one of the men in the book said he was going to move to France if the uh, war, if there was another draft and they tried to come after his son. Yeah, right. So right. So, I mean, the thing about it is these people were patriots in a way. They, you know, again, we it's a difficult thing to talk about. They, they I'm sure that they, I mean, you get the feeling that they, they loved their country, but yes. they couldn't abide this for whatever yes. reason. Right, exactly true. And I, I think the word patriot is so complicated in its, in its multiple meanings. But yes, I would think they, they thought of themselves as still very, very much uh, loving this country and right. so much of what it did stand for. And then there were these huge holes and these incredible inconsistencies. Right. And right. They, they chose this out, this right. way out. I mean, and I don't think we should be naive about this. This sort of thing that is moving abroad happened in World War Two and in Korea as well. True enough. Yes, true. <laughs> same, not, yep, and same thing with the, one of the next chapters, the whole concept of conscientious objection, because I, I wrote a chapter on the history of it, mm -hmm. and certainly started in the Civil War. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People, people of conscience were not being uh, serving. 
Right. So before the other thing I wanted to say about Canada that I think is really important in terms of the climate of the times, those were the days when we started having the bumper sticker wars, and there were stickers like "My your my country, love it or leave it." Yeah, no, I remember that, and and that really was telling because you had a lot of people that were very at, at many points hostile to those who were making that choice. So mm-hmm. even when they came back, they knew that it was going to be rough, and some people didn't come back. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember that very well. I also remember during that era, and I was a little kid, that we would wear um, prisoner bracelets. Do you remember those? Yes, yes, yes. yes those because pris- of the missing in action. Silver in the prisoner war. bracelets, yes. yeah, we would wear those. And, um, Such a complicated war. Yeah, yes. really. Uh, and again, they were putting it on little, I mean, I was a little kid, and I had no idea why I was, I kind of knew why I was wearing it. I didn't really think well, much about it. the way they start doing the brainwash, <laughs> yeah. They don't wait for you to be able to understand it yeah, before they start putting it on you. Look, it at the, well. look at the whole nature of parades and flag waving. Yeah, for real. And, and the, the movie Born on the Fourth of July, which I tried to get Ron Kovich, whose story that is, to write my introduction. I was super pleased with Charlie Clements, who actually yeah, did. Yeah. But um, that that movie has a number of scenes where super patriotism is, uh, and we still do it. We still do it with uh, flyovers of the military of baseball sure. stadiums. Sure. And there's an amazing connection between militarism, yeah. empire, and Average everyday life. Mm-hmm. So, so let's move on really quickly, so we can talk yep. about. Uh, this is a very interesting category. Those who refuse; these are not people who are conscientious objectors. This is a different no, they, class. They, in of many people. respects, they went even further. Yeah. So Definitely go ahead. Were, part yeah. of it was a huge part of it was conscientious objection, but then it went further, and they said, "I can't just participate even in becoming the conscientious objector, which in, in a way supports the system by mm-hmm. saying." I'm going to participate in it and see if I can get out of it. They're saying, I refuse to recognize the system. The system itself is so flawed and corrupt that the only position I can take is to be a refuser. And mm-hmm. uh, that is, you know, that I wanted to have respect given to those people because that is an incredible decision. Two to five years in jail, talk about cut off from everybody. You know, that's the most cut off you can be and still be a living person. Uh, it's a form of exile, internal exile, and it's an incredible curtailment of your freedom. And yet these people felt such strong views, such strength in their convictions that they were willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I had tremendous respect for them and in awe of them and I knew I was not willing and able to do that at the time. And I think it's an incredible principled stance. And yet they were vilified as well. Right. Right. So, how, how did they do it? Um, just logistically speaking. So, did you you get your uh, you you know you get your low lottery number and you just go on the lamb, or did you just show up at the, at the draft board and say, "Forget ways. it, I'm not going." Yeah, there were a number of different yeah. ways. Some people sent their draft cards in. Some people were incredibly public and vociferous, like Randy Keeler, who was arrested in the middle of reading the names of the dead in Vietnam. They they, they found him and arrested him. Other people were found because they were uh, on the lamb, and they're. Um, most most recent known address led to some inquiries that led to some other inquiries, and they'd find who was their employer or whatever they needed to do to get the people uh, caught. Mm-hmm. So there were there were definitely people trying to find people. There were a lot of people who never got caught mm-hmm. and never had to face trial or time because there were too many of them. And, so and, it was again kind of like a little bit of the luck of the draw on that in terms of how out you were in your um, objections to the war and how diligent they were in the pursuit of you. Yeah, I guess one thing that's interesting to me is that, that militaries all over the world are famous for making people or finding ways to pressure people into doing things they don't want to do. I mean, that's almost the definition of what a military it's does. That, especially with <laughs> the concept of a draft. Yeah, right. Yeah. They, they, and, so yeah, how do these people why, manage, actually, to, 
to beat that. How did people manage to beat it? You mean that? Well, yeah, that, that, I mean, you know, because like the, that's that next chapter. Yeah, the, yeah, there were so many different techniques and things that people discovered. And then it was a huge word of mouth network about what you could do. And those who were determined to try everything and resorted to these things that were clearly illegal, if they were to be caught and some were caught, um, had an amazing sort of support team of people they knew and didn't know who were experimenting with the system of what would and wouldn't work to get you out. Mm-hmm. Some of the things were, by, were, were just going up against the regulations, so that if there was a height requirement or a weight requirement, couldn't do much with your height, although one of the men in the, in the book describes lying down on the bus to see if he could stretch himself in one half or one more inch because he was already like 6'7 or something. Yeah, there is somebody who's 6'7 in the book. I noticed yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Hoekstratton, who yeah. lives up in Williamsburg. Um, <clears throat> Those people who starved themselves knew that the weight was a certain amount of weight for however tall you are, and they would stop eating. And people that t- did certain drugs to change their urine, if they caught you, they'd either find a way to prove that you were doing something illegal, and then they put you in the line and said, are you going to swear in and get drafted, or are you going to jail? And if you got past it, you were, you know, your lucky day. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Rob Zucker's story is so compelling about having to be in character as this basically crazy person wearing a trench coat and looking completely disheveled and having to be in that role for that entire time from the moment he stepped on the bus when he said goodbye to his father, who had been a CO during World War II, till he was uh, given the, the status of uh, exempt. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible, compellingly touching story mm-hmm. and scary. Yeah, this was scary times for people. You know, a lot of people had watched Arlo Guthrie in Alice's restaurant and seen him pretend he was having a berserk moment in the draft board to get out. And he also got out because he had a outstanding warrant for littering. And there's a guy in the book, George Lay, who runs the Guthrie Center in Great Barrington and uh, deep connections to Arlo and his whole family. He never told Arlo the way he got out was he had an outstanding warrant for hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Yeah. He didn't know when he went into the draft board. He thought he was toast. Yeah. And then yeah. they find a warrant that he had never uh, stood a trial for. So. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm interested in the dissemination of this knowledge, though, because as you point out, it is, um, it's, it's disseminated in, in uh, I want to use the word class, but it's disseminated in, in, in networks that are often linked to socioeconomic status or, or educational status or things like this. One of the things you mentioned was a draft counselor. Yeah, let me, let me speak to that because yeah. this is this is where you hear, you read the story about well Frank Murata became a draft, draft counselor, but Francis Crow, who I think is a living legend of our valley and yeah. should be known much more broadly, ninety five years old now. When asked how many times she'd been arrested for hugely varied protests from anti nuke stuff to anti war stuff, she said, and I'm sure she'd been arrested probably a hundred times. She said, not enough. <laughs> and Francis's uh, draft counseling was she was trying to uh, break down that class and privilege barrier. In fact, in her story, she talks about how she got her start. She got in her car and uh, drove her up and down the, the valley trying to pick up men back in the day when we hitchhiked a lot and get them in the car, captive audience, and start telling them about the draft counseling center she was organizing mm-hmm. in the basement of her house. Mm-hmm. And that purpose of that was, in another chapter, is all about conscientious objection to try to get men to know what their options were what kind of choices they had based on conscience. And she reached out across the boards to whoever was hitchhiking. And that was a very big class of people uh, in terms of the uh, different socioeconomic groups. So that kind of counseling, uh, my friend Paul Richmond uh, heard about a draft counseling uh, opportunity by listening to a free radio station in Buffalo, New York. 
and ended up having an incredible uh, subterfuge encounter with these two men who took him to a Quaker meeting place to have counseling. Mm -hmm. So the word was getting out in very many different ways about where to go for help and what the choices were and how you could make a more informed choice. Certainly, as you pointed out in that first chapter, there were a lot of men who weren't getting the message and just got plucked because they hadn't been thinking about it and they had no defenses to it. So yeah, I I had never heard that there were organized draft counseling organizations and services and volunteer groups that were Oh yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes. There was there was American Friends Service Committee started up yeah, I that think, I, that then. I knew about. Yeah. <clears throat> and um there was the War Resisters League which had started in World War 1 times. There were places to go and people to see if you were informed mm-hmm. and if someone tapped you in the shoulder or filled your head with some information that was critical for your mm-hmm. survival. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Of course, as the anti-war movement grew, there was so much more information being disseminated at rallies and marches and protests and sit-ins. There you could find incredible information, but you had to be there. And these were usually in college towns or, or someplace like that. Uh, well, no, they spread hugely. I mean, you had a mobilization in Washington after colleges shut down in 1970, in the spring of 70, mm-hmm. which is right when Kent State happened, when the force of the young people were killed by the National Guard. Uh, this was uh, way beyond just the campuses. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting that it became very... I mean, I suppose the military knew about this, and so did the government. Did they take oh, any yes. action? Oh, yes, I'm telling you, there was anti-war stuff in the military, and yeah. that's part of why they, they don't have a draft now. Right. They don't want people who they're going to bring in who aren't going to be in support of the mission. Yeah, that's that's probably a good idea, too. <laughs> well, if you want to have perpetual war, it's a great yeah. idea. But, well, yeah. you know, you have another plan in mind. Yeah, know. right. So let's talk about people who I think most people who listen to this podcast will be familiar with conscientious objection. Yep. Uh, they don't have yep. to be Quakers to do so. It's kind of an American tradition now. I can even yep. there's even a poem about it. I know um, I sing of Olaf Gladden big. Uh, yes. You may know it. And and um, can you tell us a little about the history of conscientious objection in the United States? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, if you think about the Civil War, and, and that was really the time when it was a, a religious means of getting out. You had your Quakers and your uh, the Mennonites. There were like three or four designations that could get out during that time. And it was, even then, considered incredibly uh, unacceptable on the part of a lot of people. And, and the names traitor and coward were be attached to it. Uh, there's a song... Uh, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was uh, Tracy Grammer did it or someone else about a soldier. Yeah, Tracy did a version of it about a, so- a soldier who decides it's against his conscience and he's imprisoned mm-hmm. because he was already serving, so he didn't have that as, a, as an option. Um, and then in World War One, there was a, an active group of people that uh, organized to try to support people having using conscience as their means of uh, avoiding to have to serve and expressing themselves in a totally different realm. Uh, alternate service got added somewhere in there, too, so the people who were conscientious objectors were still required to do some kind of service to the country. And in World War II, <clears throat> when it was considered the ultimate just war, people who were choosing to follow their conscience were really maligned, and there was some terrible mistreatment of a lot of them. Um, there's films have been made in the last few years only because it took so long to even recognize their existence. Because here you had a war that everybody was supposedly gung ho to support, and here were these people saying, "No, I don't want to go. It's not. It's a war. <laughs> it's killing people. It's killing many, many innocent people." And they, their protest was uh, obviously both legitimate and very, very much uh, judged. And the, the rules changed as you headed into the Vietnam War. It didn't have to be based on religion anymore. And there were court, court cases, Supreme Court cases, that got the law changed to, to be more 
open to a variety of uh, conscience protesters. So there were lots and lots more conscientious objectors in Vietnam than there ever were in any other war. Yeah. And it didn't mean it was easy to get because it was a huge function of which draft board you were going to apply to it for. Some were extremely conservative, especially in the South, not surprisingly, but other places too. And people were subjected to some pretty harsh questioning, and sometimes they were really deemed uh, unacceptable by super conservative board members. Mm-hmm. So it was very uh, random, depending on location. I applied for a conscientious objective status and never found out if I would have gotten it because of the story I told you. It would have been the next thing that would have kicked in had I not right. failed my physical. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an incredible story, and I get a lot of statistics in that chapter about the evolution of that status over mm-hmm. the years and over the wars. I mean, I it is. I was going to say it, it is an interesting constitutional question: how, how to give people, or on the basis of what criteria to give people, uh, conscience the CO status? Because yes. you, know, you yes. really don't want the government deciding what's a religion and what's not. True. That's just not Very the true. government is, shouldn't be doing that. And so, well, there's what's a religion and what's not, and that's when you get into something like the whole case of Muhammad Ali, which is an incredible story yeah. in and of itself, and uh-huh. has been well documented and now turned into a film. Just his case about his Vietnam War protest as yeah. a film, um, and so you have that whole thing. But you also have this arbitrary nature of even after that's been worked out, the people that are on these draft boards who are interpreting the Constitution right. to suit their in own, own consciences mm-hmm. and their own perception of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Now, did the CEOs during Vietnam go to jail? Or no, no, they, no, they, they, they had alternate they, service. They had alternate, they, service, no, alternate right? service meant they could end yeah. up in work. One of the, actually, I was with someone in, who is a friend of mine who was in the book, Peter Jessup, yesterday, yeah. and he uh, worked in a hospital uh-huh. in Puerto Rico. Uh-huh. So there were all kinds of alternate services that were uh, 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 available to people. Uh-huh. And CO status still exists, of course. You can get CO yes, status. Yes, it does. Yes. Uh-huh. It does still yeah. exist, and there are people supporting men to try to obtain that status both before they enter and some people who end up when they're in there realizing this is not where they should have ever gone who then try to get CO status, and there's some some people that are supporting them to do that. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. There was a, a, a Quaker-led CO group in the college I went to in the Midwest, um, even though there was no draft, but they were, yep. they were reasonably yep. active, yep. so they're around. So the uh, the last substantive chapter of the book deals with um, a people that supported the people who had either gone or who had uh, uh, um, decamped for foreign countries or who had, uh, who had refused to serve or who were uh, COs. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yes, I'm hoping the, the copy I gave you had the last interview that I added last summer on the part of a nurse because her story is, is utterly riveting. It's actually been made into a one-woman play that was done by the BBC starring Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. Her name is Penny Rock, Penny. and her story is incredible, yeah. utterly incredible. She's one of the people, in fact, who we also... Uh, Peter Snowd read the book cover to cover three times and decided he wanted to write a play. He's a playwright, a prize-winning playwright from mm-hmm. Jamaica Plain, and he's turned the book into a play entitled The Draft. Mm-hmm. And Penny's story is one of the ten that he chose of the 30 to put in the play. And the play mm-hmm. is having its premiere on three weekends in February Terrific. Terrific. Uh, in Boston. Terrific. Well, go ahead and tell the story then. Well, well, Penny's story, I mean, she was, from, from early on, she wanted to be an opera singer. Like, she kind of knew it when she was, like, four. And she thought, I wanted to have a career that allows me to get the training and, the, and everything I need, and so I'm going to become a nurse, and then they'll send me to Germany, and I can even study opera in Germany, and she ended up in Vietnam. And her experiences are totally torturous and kind of, like, uh, sublimely human, because of the things she is seeing and the things that she does 
are overwhelming, and we don't pay anywhere near enough attention to both their contribution and the effects on nurses who served in Vietnam. And she came back, and with the ultimate irony, she got some kind of weird bacterial infection that attacked her vocal cords, Mm -hmm. and she could never sing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she also came back with amazing, amazing trauma, and she spent the next 40 years trying to heal from it. And there are incredible stories in there of the things she saw and the things she did, the loving, loving care she gave to so many men, uh, up to and including Max, who she encountered 30 years later, totally by accident, in front of the Vietnam Veterans Nursing Monument next to the wall. Mm -hmm. They were alone there, and he spotted her and said, you look a lot like the woman in the statue. Are you Penny? And she has this encounter with Max, whose life she saved four times. So just amazing, amazing story. And I saw her, the one woman play that she was dramatized in was at the Springfield Armory about seven years ago. And miraculously, when I went to see it with Rob Wilson, who runs the Veterans Education Project, she was in the audience, having come from California. And I heard she was in the audience, and we applauded her after the play. And then I approached her and said, your story is amazing. Can Mm -hmm. I please talk to you? And she had me meet her in the Red Lion Inn where she comes every summer. And we spent four hours. And I brought a friend with me, my friend Lola Reed, the only time I'd ever done an interview with another person with me. And I was so glad because afterwards I got to talk to Lola what it was like to hear that interview. Mm Because it had been mind-blowing to hear her stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I've already mentioned Frances Crow. Uh, She started a draft counseling center in a basement and she helped a lot of men she saved a lot of lives yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and then there were two women who went to canada with their men that their stories are amazing and it's it's i'm so glad i did that chapter that deserves a whole nother book just mm-hmm. those women mm-hmm. um well you know uh tom thanks so much for writing the book and thanks for talking to us our time is almost up i have a couple of more questions at least one more before i ask you our traditional final question and yep. this has to do with um well, I don't know, exactly know how to put it. I guess I'll put it in the baldest terms. Uh, as far as I can tell, there is no anti-war movement today in the United States. We've been at war for 12 years, as you point out, and I, I don't see a lot of resistance to uh, however you want to characterize what we're doing abroad. And this is very different from the late 1960s and early 70s. Very different. And since you've lived through both and studied the former intensively, and obviously you have experience with what's going on now what what why is that well i'll sum it up in two words no draft yeah no i think you're right that's a huge (laughs) factor to me marilyn young who is an extraordinary vietnam war scholar and i was blessed to have her endorse my book and she's written a little blurb on the back uh she's written the vietnam wars 1945 to 1975 yeah we've we've actually had her on the show Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. And she's written this book. Maybe you then know. Of course you know Iraq and Vietnam, How Not to Learn the Lessons mm, from the Past. That I don't know. But That's I'm glad you mentioned she it. Wrote, yeah, an amazing book that I highly recommend that would be a great follow-up to reading after my book. Yeah. Um, I read it before I wrote my book, while I was reading my book. But she talks about how the lessons that were learned are all the wrong ones. But they learned them really well, and it makes us be able to have perpetual war with no anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest ones was don't have a draft. Yeah. Don't encourage them, you know, don't get people so uptight and worried about serving in yet another immoral, illegal war that we have to not have it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a huge connection. Now, does that mean I want to draft? Of course not. It was a terrible thing. I don't know how else to stop the war machine. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I did notice, I used to teach uh, at a, 
Well, I've taught at a couple of very elite universities, let's put it that way. And I did so over a number of years, uh, probably 15 if you count them all. And I never met anybody who had any association with the military, nor did they plan to. There you go. There you go. And, so, we have and these to, are the future leaders of America, yes, whether we like we, it or not. I agree. And <laughs> we have such a separation now between the military and the civilians. It's incredible. That used to, the draft used to impact every family one way or the other. Yeah, it's funny. I hate to mention this, but like Al Franken, who's a hilarious guy, uh, he did. He, he somehow heard somebody disparage the, um, the participation of Jews in the military. And, and, of course, Jews have a great tradition in the American military. So he went to look for the highest-ranking uh, um, uh, sort of self uh, – so, sort of out-Jewish, sort of a practicing Jewish person in the American military. And it was something like a lieutenant in the Coast Guard. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that sums up a lot right there. Yeah. I mean, you of course, know. you'll find a few of them in the Israeli army. Yeah, oh, no, that's different entirely. Uh, yeah. Scarifying. Right. Well, a couple of American citizens have been killed over there recently yeah. who were, had yes. joint citizenship. Yes. So that's, that's true. serious that's business, true. man. Yeah. But anyway, I'm sure if you looked at the Harvard class and the Yale class, you wouldn't find very much that was different. No. They did have ROTC there. I know that. But it was run yes. out of, at Harvard. Yes. They had it at yes. MIT. It wasn't yep. actually run out of. And, you know, I went to Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, and nobody had any association with the military there whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, that was just this like... This is the divide. It's a class divide. It's a, yeah. it's a psychological divide, and it really allows there to be the empire is served well. Yeah, and you know, minorities are well overrepresented in the military oh, today. Oh, totally, and that was really true in Vietnam. People really from true. lower classes, or, or under lower classes, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but they're they're well overrepresented in the military too. And, and you know what Muhammad Ali's infamously great line was, nobody over there ever called me the N-word. Yeah, right. I mean, couldn't be any more. That sums up everything in yeah. one sentence. Yeah. You know? No, it's a pretty, it's, it's a very peculiar thing, and your book really does sort of it, it points to the difference between then and now. Because now it's like the military exists, and we're in these wars, and people don't really know it. No, nope. you know, they, they're not like, like they're not they're kind of not aware that we're still at war. Yeah, think, and that's one of the reasons for the book too to reach across the generations because it's supposed to act as a uh, a, a reminder. Uh, uh, curative. I'm not exactly sure which one word would suffice, but the idea is I want people who are now 18 to 30 to be aware of what war does. Yeah, it's a, it's Whether a, there's a draft or not, this is what you're going to come back dealing with when you are finished, because yeah. this is what it does to people. I mean, it's such an interesting now, thing. If there's a draft, it does it to even more people, but it does it to people no matter what. But also, it kind of perpetuates itself, because, you know, as I say, my, my father was in the military, my uncles were in the military, yes. my, my, yes. my, you know, the, everybody was in the military, and some of them actually went to war, but the students that I teach now, uh, I'm not going to tell you where, but the, and have taught, they have no relatives who were ever in the military. Yeah. Yeah. They never touched it. No, that's and, right. And so that's they're completely right. But even when you from, have the relatives who are supposedly the ones whose legacy you were supposed to follow, yeah. they weren't wanting to talk about it, so you really didn't get that big a sense. Of well, that's another interesting thing. We've talked about this on the show before, too, because my father, who was in the military, and in his generation, the, um, the, the military was a synonym for an incredibly badly run organization. Yeah, yep. <laughs> just the way yep. they thought of yep. it. Like you could, there's the, there's you know there's the right way, the wrong way, and the army way, and the right. army way was totally yep. effed up. And that's just and the that's way he thought changed. about it. <laughs> that's not changed that much. Look at all the cost overruns and the amazing amount of waste and the things that are not being the soldiers not having the right equipment. Yeah. I mean, that's just it's, it's, it's legendary. Like, it was for them. It was just a synonym for something that was effed up. And, yes. But people yeah. don't you know people who aren't in it don't think about it that way anymore. They're of course, like, oh, we 
I don't think about. I don't think army. they think about it at all. <laughs> Someone else has taken care of that. Yeah. I don't have to think about it. They're doing the dirty work. No, That's what it was, and it still is. Yeah, you're really right about that. It's amazing how things have changed. It's just astounding how things have yeah. changed. And your book, like I said, does a great job of sort of bringing all that to light and the great well, gap in the American consciousness about the fact that we have. We're still doing these things for right or wrong, and but we just don't acknowledge them anymore. It's just a big and, you get, and then you get somebody who does acknowledge it. That's what I loved about Charlie Clemens writing the introduction, and he talks about how when he was asked to fly missions over Cambodia and was told blank point blank that Nixon had been lying about Cambodia, and he said, "I'm not going to fly anymore," and they put him in a mental hospital. Yeah, right. And right. after a year in the mental hospital, they declared him 10% mentally incompetent. Right. And when he came to me with a reading uh, in uh, UMass Boston, because he lives in Boston and works at Harvard. Harvard, he, he used to ask people in the audience, raise your hand if you don't think you're 10% mentally incompetent. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a ridiculous thing to have said and done to somebody. Yeah. Then, he became a, then he became a doctor, and with Physicians for Social Responsibility, won the Nobel Prize. So I think he was pretty competent. Yeah, he was pretty But he was saying yeah. no, you know. No, it's just fascinating. It's not tolerated. It's fascinating how the image of the military, the military has done a great job of improving their image in the public because when everybody served everybody knew it was messed up yeah that's true that's true <laughs> I and not to mention their wonderful advertising campaigns that make it look like everybody's a hero yeah. that's what they do that's to get people to volunteer that's it's, what they've had to do back in the day they didn't have to do that as much because they got you know captive audience right. with a draft the right way the wrong way and the army way my father used to say it all the time yep, yep, um, yep, and yep. the army way was the worst way so anyway Tom it's really been a great pleasure talking to you I wondered if you could Same close here. the interview by telling us what your current or next project is well, I'm actually in the middle of uh, or starting my seven year. Well, I'm in year two of my next seven years. I, I may be able to go faster because I'm going to retire in a couple of years. Of a book about my men's group uh, and and the evolution of men's consciousness, uh, starting with the uh, uh, feminism in the early mm-hmm. late '60s and early '70s. I'm even mm-hmm. thinking of calling it "Brothers from Other Mothers." <laughs> and I'm writing about the different groups I participated in since 1972. Cool. There'll be interviews with women, talking about women's groups. Um, the first chapter is uh, all about the uh, enormous influence of consciousness-raising groups in the feminist movement on men and their lives and their formation of groups. Well, so that's what I'm embarked upon. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and I hope that you come back on the show when you're done with it. Me too. All it's right. Been a so, pleasure. let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Tom Weiner about his book called "To Serve: Stories of Men and Women Confronted by the Vietnam War Draft." Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Tom. My pleasure. Totally enjoyed it. And Thanks. let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast and all the podcasts on the New Books Network that we really appreciate your attention very much, and I hope that you have a great week. 